This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. I've been working on a very special project with climate farmers for the last few months, and I'm proud to say that we're finally ready to announce our new pioneer program for farmers in Europe. For this round, we've partnered with a longtime hero of mine, Darren Doherty, and his Regrarians platform to bring the most complete regenerative farm training program together with our unique Carbon Plus credits for transition finance assistance. The Regrarians online program is built around their expanded scale of permanence through which you'll learn essential elements of holistic management, key line design, farm infrastructure development, soil health, business and finances, and so much more. All of this will be accompanied by access to some of the biggest names in regenerative agriculture around the world through our skill exchange calls, expert panel discussions, and a chance to get dedicated attention from some of the best ag consultants in your region, as well as guidance through the application process to our Carbon Plus credits. Along the way, I'll be leading weekly coaching calls for the entire group, and you'll be able to interact and ask questions to your peers and the whole Regrarians network with access to their workplace community. All of this amounts to the most thorough and robust program to guide you through your journey to profitable regenerative farming. Whether this is your first introduction into agriculture, or you're a seasoned veteran who's been growing for decades, whether you're only planting a small farm, or you're managing thousands of hectares, you'll find everything that you need to make the journey as smoothly and confidently as possible. Now, applications will only be reviewed until the 5th of November, and there is a limit to how many people we can accept into the program, so don't hesitate. Even if you're not farming right now, I'll bet you know someone who would benefit immensely for this kind of guidance and training, so make sure to recommend it to them as well. For more information on how to apply to become a pioneer farmer, you can follow the link in the show notes or go directly to climatefarmers.org. I can't wait to see you there. Hello and welcome back everyone. Today we'll be picking up where we left off for the last installment of the three-part series with Graham Sait. Now for a long time I've been working to connect the pieces between ecological health, regenerative methods of farming, and the health of the human body. Now though many of you will find the connection between all of these three elements very intuitive, I've worked to find experts and practitioners who've illuminated some of these essential pieces of that puzzle over the span of this podcast. Up until now, most of the discussions on this show have focused on just one of those elements at a time, but today we'll continue with the last of the three-part series with Graham Sait, who has made it his life's work to marry these disciplines and train farmers, healthcare professionals, and ecologists around the world in the importance of caring for our bodies and our ecologies as a single organism that requires all of the pieces to be in place for optimal function. Now, if you didn't have the chance to hear the first two parts of this series, I highly recommend it to give context to this episode, and I've linked to them in the show notes. So for a quick recap, Graham Sait is the internationally acclaimed author and educator who co-founded Nutritech Solutions, or NTS, and Nutrition Matters, as well as hosting the Nutrition Farming Podcast. He has written hundreds of published articles and the popular book Nutrition Rules, Graham has formulated many of the soil health and human health products for which NTS are renowned, and he has developed all of the nutrition programs that are the keystones of their proactive management approach. Graham also owns Nutrition Farm, which comprises of two distinctly different properties dedicated to the production of nutrient-dense, chemical-free food with forgotten flavors and enhanced medicinal qualities. 
Because our conversation turned into a marathon of learning, I decided to release it in three parts, which will make it easier to process and define which parts to go back to in order to review some of the information. Here in this third and last session, Graham and I wrap up the interview by talking about the unique benefits of worm castings in the soil and all the nutrition that they are able to cycle in the system. We also discuss how and why humic substance content in the soil is directly related to the profitability of a farm business, the new science and the technology that is transforming the regenerative ag space, and a lot more. Now, Graham is an incredible wealth of knowledge, and you'll quickly see why I chose to break this interview into parts, because every snippet contains enough information for a show by itself. Now, with that out of the way, I'll hand things over now to Graham. I'm wondering your opinion on all of the different amendments and things that would be required to kind of kickstart a deficient soil or one that is missing essential biology and get it moving in the right direction and how that differs from a treatment or a symptoms-based approach, much like we find in current modern medicine, and one that really works towards a cure so that it starts to self-maintain and inputs and outside effects can start to be reduced, eventually eliminated once it reaches a homeostatic uh, level of health, of holistic yeah. health. So there's, you know, there's the whole soil food web community and the various roles, but the most uh, obvious of those, of course, the most visible of those is the, is the earthworm. And when we look at the role of this little creature, which has been obliterated in most farming soils, wherever I go across the globe, when I could travel, um, you ask the question, how many of you have got, you know, reasonable numbers or any earthworms, and most people haven't, we've taken them out of the equation. So, so one of the first markers you're going to look for in terms of changing that, that soil and that soil fertility uh, is the earthworm. And when we look at the earthworm, we look at, you know, its role. I mean, we, I talked about the imports of oxygen. Here's this guy maintains his own burrow. No one's allowed to touch that burrow. He drills down, comes up every night. Uh, when, he, when he goes down each night, he lays this beautiful layer of microbial foods on the inside of his tunnel. And it's like you'll never find any higher point in the soil than an earth that if you're measuring the, ins, the, the, the measuring the inside of an earthworm burrow in terms of microbial biomass, because that layer that he lays there is just filled with ridiculous diversity of microbes that come in to feed. And then when he comes up each night to poo and to grab a bit of organic matter to convert it into humus, he sucks like a vacuum cleaner and sucks up all these organisms. It's like setting a trap for something and then catching it. Then he comes up, he drops this poo, and then you analyze the poo. And what you find in that poo is 10 times more nitrogen, eight times more potassium, six times more uh, phosphorus, and three times more magnesium or one and a half times more calcium and a whole bunch of trace minerals and a group, unique group of organisms that are incubated in the earthworm's gut that you can't find anywhere else. So you've got a fertilizer machine, and then where do you get this one and a half times calcium, the most abundant mineral in the soil? It's got a little calcium carbonate gland and it pumps, so you've got a lime works and a fertilizer factory in one, you, and, and a microbial works, inoculant system all in one and then we look at the most important single substance and we now understand the profitability so we had our largest bank say okay we're it's the dominant model had the years has been get bigger or get out so we have farmers say i've got to buy my neighbor's farm i need to borrow some money so we tick the boxes and we have all the set of criteria did they qualify for the loan we tick the boxes yes they qualified and then way too many high, too high percentage of those loans falls over. So we need to revalue what determines profitability. Is it the amount of MPKs? Is it the size of your tractor? Is it your marketing skills? Is it your um, accountant skills or whatever in terms of the complex process of managing a, a farming enterprise? 
and to the absolute surprise of everyone, the primary, and we're talking head and shoulders above number two, and guess what number two was? The calcium to magnesium ratio. But number one was the amount of humus in the soil. The percentage of the humus determines your end profitability. Well, here we have this little creature called an earthworm who decomposes four times more efficiently than any other known form of decomposition. It is a humus machine that, that casting is humus. So it's like it's like immensely important when we recognize we've got to sequester the carbon and put it back, you've got to bring back earthworms. And you've, and when you get to the holy grail of biological or regenerative or nutrition farming, which is 25 earthworms per shovel average over three, four samples over a six month period, uh, you basically have got very few inputs needed at that point because you've just got to feed the earthworms and you feed them cover crops and you do whatever and you've got a system that's functioning. So that's a really good, very important starting point. Uh, but there's all there's very simple things like your nose knows uh, because what you're smelling when you smell a healthy soil. So you know what the smell of a healthy soil is. One of my favourite soils on smells on the planet. I mean, what would there be? There'd be freshly ground coffee, a baby's head, uh, freshly baked bread, and, and 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 a healthy soil. It's this wonderful smell. And what you're smelling is a creature called actinomycetes that produce volatile chemicals that give that soil smell. And the more of them present, the better that smell. And basically, they're a signpost creature. They're there everything else is functioning reasonably well, not necessarily perfectly, but reasonably well. So the better it smells, the better it is. And you'll see that good block smells good, the smell element is no smell, or sometimes a sour smell from anaerobic problems. So, so the simple little monitoring tools to, to, to make those changes. And now we've got these meters that can monitor that we can head in the right direction and feed that soil and feed the organisms and grow the cover crops. And then uh, we've got to address the mineral shortages. And the fastest and easiest and most cost-effective way to do that is this recognition now of the power of foliage spray. And it's 12 times more efficient. We've got, we, I work in Saskatchewan with guys with 10 and 15 and 20,000 acre farms, for example, uh, and their huge rigs that were, which we use specifically for fungicides and insecticides are now used solely for foliage. They're not using fungicides and insecticides because they're doing the nutrition, they're doing leaf tests, which they're asking the question, what do you want, plant? Oh, that's what you want, and they foliage spray, whatever's required. And with that, you include, you know, these, these natural biostimulants. Kelp is wonderful. Kelp has got so many different active compounds and there's so many studies now. A big one came out just last month in terms of the suite of compounds. Of course, all 74 minerals from the ocean, a natural collating agent. You put kelp with other minerals and collate them. But the highest known source of, of the four hormones, cytokines, gibberellins, oxygens, and betaines that every plant requires for every stage of its growth, including post-harvest. Uh, three of those hormones determine how fast the food breaks down after you pull it off and put it on this fruit shelf. So, um, so basically those four hormones that govern every aspect of a plant, they're produced from bacteria. Uh, the plant produces themselves based on minerals in the soil. Well, there's not the same mineral spectrum as there, so you'd assume there's some shortage of genetic potential through a lack of those hormones. And then the secondary sources, the microorganisms that look after their host by, by taking some minerals from the soil and producing some of those same four hormones and giving them to their host. Well, the soil has been knocked around. The base minerals that you build the hormones from have been based knocked around. So many plants, you could argue, cannot achieve their genetic potential. Now we've got one exception, uh, and that plant has 40 times more hormone of those four hormones than any land-based plant because it sits in the perfect balance of 74 minerals. The findings on longevity studies are that the ocean is the perfect balance of 74 minerals for humans and animals. And if you can swim in the ocean, this new longevity study that came out the month before last, if you can swim in the ocean, 
for half an hour a day, five times a week, that's 12 to 15 years increase in longevity because you're sucking in half a cup of that perfect balance of minerals during that period. So the kelp lives in that perfect balance, absorbs those minerals, and because it's got all the building blocks, it produces 40 times more of those four hormones than the next closest land plant, which is called aloe vera. And so then when you put kelp out, and those hormones work at tiny, tiny amounts, you can easily overdo them. So you can do, do it so cost-effectively, there's just tiny amounts, particularly as a foliar, it's more effective as a foliar than in the soil. But, but then when you change those things and you change the genetic expression in some cases, like kelp is wonderful for, for, for climate change because it's, it's, it's absolutely specific to both biotic, uh, which is you know, pest and disease pressure, uh, it's called the rescue remedy, the, the whole four hormones, and several other compounds in kelp are involved, are involved in that, and seaweed are involved in that, but uh, also for abiotic stress, which of course is heat waves and drought and so forth, and, and extremes like the hailstorm I just had on my apple farm last weekend, we went straight in with kelp to buffer uh, as a rescue remedy to buffer some of that damage. So those kind of things, those plant growth stimulants that can... Uh, that also feed micros, kelp feeds fungi only. It doesn't really doesn't have much impact on bacteria at all. It's all filled with long chain carbohydrates that feed fungi. So wonderful input. And we're finding here uh, species like sargassum that are running rampant in climate change. And sargassum is one of the very valuable kelps that you can use in agriculture. So there's actually, we can say, okay, we'll take that. And, and there's more of it growing because of the extra, extra warmth in, in certain areas and so forth. So let's take it and use it in agriculture. So there's some, some good stories in there of the things we need today. Indeed. Now, as someone who has their finger on the pulse of what is coming out in soil science and nutritional science constantly, there still needs to be a recognition that a lot of these pursuits are still in sort of infancy stages. We understand quite a bit, but they haven't been at the forefront for very long. And there are new discoveries coming out all the time. Where do you see the biggest room for improvement in our understanding of how soil and nutrition works? And what are some of the discoveries that really have you excited about what is possible? Well, there's, there's, um, there's a group in the US, um, Dan Kittredge, I'm trying to think what he calls them, the Bionutrient Alliance, that have, you've heard of what they're doing and they've developed a, a, a very good uh, technology. There's actually about three or four technologies happening all at once. And they've really got kind of some, you might've heard of the uh, Israeli, uh, there's a, a California guy, his daughter's chemical sensitive uh, and um, he teamed up with an Israeli guy and that's still been kind of this, people are trying to stomp it out and it's still trying people keep crowdfunded and people are still waiting for their units. But, but, but basically the story on it was that it was done with a mobile phone app and you could go to the supermarket and it would basically do a read of chemical, chemicals and nutrient density. And, and there's three or four technologies that are right on our door and Kittredge is one of them. Uh, and basically, I mean, one of the things that, you know, I've been training some really large grower groups around the world, people like Green Yard Farms and Dole Corporation and so forth, and doing the five-day courses sometimes two or three times for them, whole supermarket chains and LM. And part of what's driving their recognition of a need for change is that when those kind of te technologies become readily available, you can pick them up online and you can go in the supermarket, the cat is out of the bag. I mean, you imagine everyone checking their, their cornflakes that they're feeding their child and saying, oh, my God, it's got nine chemicals in it, it's got whatever. Uh, and, and suddenly, this, you know, really, the shit hits the fan, as we say in Australia. Uh, and so, really, there's this recognition that you have really not much choice but heading in this regenerative model. And, of course, there's the whole climate change story linked to it as well and the whole health crisis story linked to it. So it's just it's kind of like the shape of the future or there might not be much of one 
is where we're at with many, many people recognizing that now. So what was when I started as a trickle of interest in this whole approach has become literally a, a tidal wave now. It's, it's a, a revolution is underway without the slightest trace of a doubt and it's happening everywhere. So it's lovely to see. And, and really in some countries, like I've done a lot of work in South Africa, um, including training their major supermarket chain, Woolworths. I've trained them several times with my courses. Um, and they've, they launched what's called Farming for the Future, where all of the food is produced with this nutrition farming concept. And it's been a tremendous success story. And now the UK supermarkets are meeting with me or were prior to COVID to talk about training them. And they didn't give the, South Africa didn't give the farmers any choice. They said, you do these courses, you pass these exams, or you're no longer a Woolworths grower. And they didn't believe that they could, you know, do the things that we taught them to do. And then they found it worked. And they've got, you see, I see get these images of, you know, black farmhands, um, for example, in South Africa with all of their monitoring tools. And they've got their little agronomy charts writing up all the results from all the things there. And they monitor them so that they've got this feedback constantly of what's happening in the crop. And they found that, you know, it does work and it works really well. And to the point that it's probably the world leader now and regenerative agriculture in South Africa. It's mainstream. If you're not doing something regenerative, you're a wanker, as we say in Australia. So, yeah, it's lovely to see. Uh, it's really literally is uh, just common sense is what you're doing now. So, and that's how it's changing everywhere, and that's really, really good to see. And there is, um, you know, as I said, there is, uh, I mentioned that media, you can plug in and there's seven things measured instantly. All of those changes I can see very, very quickly um, that we're going to have drone capacity, for example, when we look at how we can dovetail technologies with agriculture, where you can get cameras with significant, with, with, the, with the program, obviously, with the, the, the pixelation, the quality, to be able to dif dif differentiate, look at the leaf and say, yes, that needs some magnesium and some manganese and some zinc, and it needs it right now. Uh, and so you can just monitor your crop and have fingertip control on your nutrition. Uh, with flying your drone around on a daily basis. And that's really close. We're almost there. So there's some really good things at the forefront of what's possible and where we're heading uh, in, this, in, this, uh, in this new world that's emerging. So it's, it's lovely. But, you know, you can't, um, you can't keep on putting more and more on to less and less response. If we look at this one study I'm familiar with, which you can't find online, and I've got, the, you know, I had the study um, in one of my PAs put it somewhere in a folder, but I, but I, you know, I had the study printed out. And the study was looking at 700, uh, sorry, uh, 1,400 school children uh, and 700 from rural areas, 700 from urban, area, urban areas. And they looked at the presence of the 13 most commonly used um, chemicals in the tissues, in the blood, and the hair of those kids. Uh, and so we're talking fungicides, pesticides, nematicides, herbicides, a wormicide that most cattle producers pour down the throat. And to the horror of the researchers, they couldn't find a single child who didn't have unacceptable levels according to FDA standards of all 13 farm chemicals. See, the two things that we weren't told about this chemical extractive model, we were told, oh, yeah, we've done the trials on a guinea pig for three months and there's minimum residue levels and we stick to them. Well, we don't, but, but sometimes we do because they're not tested very often. But assuming that they were correct, there's two things we weren't told about. One of them is called bioaccumulation. So how does your body manage, even though they're tiny amounts, how does your body manage them? Well, it's your liver. You've got a two-stage detoxification system and your liver is at the head of that. And the liver is, 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 is uh, qualified to, to basically take any natural contaminants. So they might be arsenic or a snake bite or whatever, or mercury, they're all super toxic, but they're natural. So the liver's geared to have some kind of detox pathway to manage those things. And many of our farm chemicals, at least half of them, 
are derived from natural things, which the liver actually can detoxify to some degree. But the other half are our creations. And the liver says, what the bloody hell is that thing? Because it can tell by the structure that it's not good. So it pumps them off and it stores them in our fat cells. That's where they're, that's where they're stored. And that's part of what they measured on those children. That's called bioaccumulation. There they build and build like a little time bomb. I mean, what I teach my farmers is that one of the greatest strategies to clean those residues out, because everyone who's dealt with chemicals has got chemicals in them. You get it on your hand, it's in your body. There's no faster way to get it into your bloodstream than through your, through your skin. It's just, it's the fastest way. It's on magnesium, it's 10 times more efficient putting it through your skin than taking it through your mouth. So you've got it on your skin, it's in your body. And half of those chemicals are gonna, even though they might, but sometimes it's quite concentrated in agriculture when it splashes on you or you get, you get it on your hands or whatever. But you need to understand that that's accumulating. And one of the chemicals that smells, that has most a very, very familiar smell is 2,4-D. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an oxen that you just have to do this overdose with the plant and it's got a smell, I hate the smell, it's got a strong smell. So there's a technology that Japanese developed um, probably 20 or 30 years ago, it's called far infrared saunas. And they're unique in that they use a whole different wave, a, a light spectrum. And they penetrate, and that light penetrates, and it generates heat much more efficiently. Light generates sweat much more efficiently, quite low, quite a lot lower heats than a conventional sauna. But it pumps into those fat cells, right, and it, even down to an inch and a half in, and it pumps out stored chemicals. And very commonly, farmers will smell the 2,4-D on their towel. And sometimes for five or six saunas, they've still got this thing. That's bioaccumulation. That's what they measured on those children. We weren't told that. No one knew that that was happening. The second thing that no one was told was called the cocktail effect. What happens when you've got those little residues and you combine them together? It's ridiculous because there's no work done on it. No one, no work to say you put three chemicals together. If you know chemistry, you've got a fourth chemical. No one's checked that fourth chemical. Farmers never put one thing in the tank. There's always a maze of things. Uh, and, and either way, you're eating a whole bunch of food with different residues on it. And so the chem that cocktail effect is So I was with uh, uh, dining with a billionaire who had lost three wives to cancer. And he decided to fund some research which involved um, 10 pharmachemicals and there's much more than and 100 of their combinations. Now understand that 10 pharmachemicals, there are hundreds of thousands, between one and 100% of 10 things, there are hundreds of thousands of combinations, probably more than a million, but certainly hundreds of thousands. And he looked at over a three year period, he funded research looking at 100 combinations of those 10 chemicals, and he found three new class three carcinogens, which means he proved that it gave cancer to animals. It's a little less ethical in a three year period to show that it gives cancer to humans. How do you, how do you show that? But you can understand that that's, that's, if it gives cancer to animals, it probably gives cancer to us. So that's just that's the part about that chemical model we weren't told. In your generation, uh, you know, I mean, my, my son's in your age group, he lives in Germany and Berlin, and all, you know, the four kids are in sort of that range group. And, you know, most of them are saying, well, I'm eating organic food, you know. So that's the generation, that's the consumers who are saying, I don't want this crap, you know. So that's part of the other driver is it's just, a, you know, and that's why what I always suggest is you vote with your wallet, you know. Uh, you, you, the more organic or sustainable or regenerative food that you produce and farmers make, it's a great opportunity to allow you to do that. And they're growing everywhere in the world at a hell of a pace because people want to put a face to their food. They want to know who produced their food and what's in that food. And they want to know the person who did it and want to ask them questions and so forth. And, and our farmers markets here, it's not organic, it's chemical free. On half of the produce will be chemical free signs. And I know half the growers in Nigeria and they're chemical free. So, um, so, and that's, that's sort of this emerging recognition by people demanding cleaner 
and more tasty food, basically, which is a, a good way to sponsor change. Man, with all of this new information coming out, and there's so many different ways that you can go into it and specialize, you know, whether it's um, mineral balance in soils or biology or fungal aspects, all the way up to nutrition, the way that it affects many of our different functions, it can be somewhat unapproachable for people who either lack the time or perhaps are not interested in this and just want to find solutions. What would you say are some of the most important concepts for beginners to get a grasp on or perhaps rephrased, what would you most like to be common knowledge among the population that could result in some real improvements in both the health of our soils and the health of our bodies? The starting point would be um, to understand nitrogen. It's hugely important. You've got to get it right, but you've got to get it right. It's the Goldilocks one rule. You've got to get it just right because it's a big price to pay for overdoing it. And it's a big price for us health-wise. So, What's been underemphasized in the whole climate change story and agriculture's role in it, the figures are quite simply that we, which produces 25% of the CO2. So it's only the third largest contributor. First is coal-fired power stations. Second, it will surprise you, I bet you can't guess it. What do you think is the second? Uh, loss of topsoil? No, the second, the second is that loss of topsoil is, is well, loss of humus is third, but the second is actually concrete manufacture. It's oh, the sure. second largest. Well, because you've got to burn calcium carbonate to make calcium oxide and off it goes into the atmosphere in China and India and China, particularly with all of their protests. So, well, all of us are, but they're sort of coming to the party now. So that's number two. Um, but when we look at that blanket, first thing to understand is the greenhouse blanket is not something evil. We, don't, we wouldn't be here with that, that blanket of three greenhouse gases because the sun passes through that blanket, warms the air, some of the heat warms up and some of it's trapped beneath the blanket and that creates a livable climate. If it wasn't there, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't have a livable climate without a greenhouse blanket, but we've made that blanket a little thicker than it used to be. And of course, the three main gases are CO2, nitrous oxide, and methane. And then we look at agriculture, 25% of the CO2, 60% of the methane, and 80% of the nitrous oxide. And that's the one that's not been addressed because they say it's only 5% of the pie, but it's 310 times more thickening of that blanket than what CO2 is. And agriculture's the major prime culture, and that's just mismanagement of nitrogen. So one of the simple things that people can do, because uh, they also have nitrogen, drives my yield, but and people are putting insane amounts out, you know, and you've, you know, it's creating so many problems. I mean, I mean amongst, amongst multiple problems, it's the simple thing that we've, there is no water on the planet now, maybe there is somewhere in the Arctic or something, but there's no, there's no groundwater now that's not contaminated with nitrates. nitrates Professor Otto Warbeck won his Nobel Prize for discovering the root cause of cancer. And the root cause of cancer is anaerobism. And what nitrates do is reduce the cell's capacity to carry oxygen or to transport oxygen in the body's capacity. So nitrates are 200 published papers more probably uh, linking nitrates directly to cancer. That's why you don't want to be eating heaps of bacon like you guys do. Because I know I got, I've, been, I've, been in, I've been in restaurants and breakfast and I just can't believe what the Dutch guys are eating with that. But the bacon, well, bacon sodium nitrate is a carcinogen and the World Health Organization say, stop eating it, for God's sake, particularly the Dutch. So uh, it's just something to be aware of. Um, but but the, the amount that we're losing to the atmosphere through volatilization and to the water that we're drinking through leaching of nitrates is insane. And, we, and part of that... Um, particularly the leaching story is the loss of humus is the interplay, interplay with humus because humus of course is 
the only thing that can store negatively charged anions. So humus is the storehouse for sulfur, which is deficient in almost every soil you look at, and it's really important. Boron, one of the most deficient trace minerals, uh, can only be stored on the humus colloid. And nitrate nitrogen is negatively charged. Humus has positively charged Velcro sites, and it's the only thing that can hold. So as we've lost our nitrate, so we've lost our sulfur, we've lost our boron, and more importantly, we've lost a lot of nitrate. Um, so, so you know, the great gain in improving humus and, of course, improving um, profitability accordingly and making nitrogen more efficient. But the other thing is looking at nitrogen, how can we make this most important mineral? You can't deny, you can't, you know, a lot of organic people fall flat on their face because of too little nitrogen and they don't have the, the, the options, perhaps, to, to utilise nitrogen properly. Um, but so we can't ignore it, how can we do it better? Well, one thing is we stabilize what we put in the soil and that's where if we're using urea, humic acid and urea form a urea humate. Now it can't leach, it can't volatize. So that's a great little strategy and it's well researched. But more importantly is if we look at the most widely used form of nitrogen, which is urea, urea um, basically goes into the soil, starts life as an amine. This is important to understand this pathway. So urea is the amine form of the unique, uniquely the amine form of nitrogen. You put it in the soil, immediately the ureate enzyme converts it into the ammonium form of nitrogen, then bugs convert it to nitrate and you've flooded your plant with nitrates and diluted the plant, often cause problems and people have noted. Most growers now put a big dose of nitrogen, I have insect, insect, increased insect pressure. But once it's in the leaf, and stored in the leaf, you want it as a protein. You don't want to stain there as a calling card for insects. And that again involves molybdenum, but it involves a hugely energetic process because the firing of that nitrate reductive enzyme is one of the most energy intensive processes in the life of the plant. They say it sucks up to 17% of photosynthetic potential. Well, that could have been 70% money extra yield in your pocket, but it went into something that it shouldn't have been going into because you've overdone that amount of nitrate that's ended up there. Uh, and so what it, you say, you use all this energy to convert it to an amine. And then it's two, two more stages and it's really simple to go from amine to amino acid to protein. So what would happen if you bypassed that whole story of volatile urea in the soil, leaching, off-gassing, biggest source of it is urea and it's off-gassing, and you foliar sprayed much, much lower levels because it's 12 times more efficient, not foliar spraying than the soil. So you foliar spraying the amine straight into the leaf, click, amino acid, click, protein. There's nothing more efficient. You can't do it if you're organically certified, but if you're a regenerative or a nutrition farmer, you can, and you're using between seven and 15, some go as high as 20 kilos per maize uh, of, of urea instead of 150 kilos of side dress. And so it's super efficient. There's no, you put, always put humic acid with it to create a urea humate that can't volatize uh, and can't leach. And that just turns the most inefficient amount of mineral fertilizing into the most efficient. And that saves you a whole bunch of money in the process. So they're win-win scenarios, and there's lots of them, but it's part of that whole story of nutrition farming and how it works. Wow. Yeah, that uh, it opens up so many possibilities for the farm business side as well. Like not yeah. only reducing the amount of inputs, presumably increasing the profits as a result, but making the type of structural changes that are going to improve the health of the entire ecosystem in the long run. And like you said, these things are directly connected to the profitability of the business, which hopefully reduces the stress levels and helps to improve the actual physical health of the farmers as well. Yep, you got it. It really comes full circle there. Well, Graham, I think this is probably a good time to sign off. I'm 
I could talk to you about this stuff all day. The just the amount of information is so valuable. I really look forward to perhaps getting you on a panel in the future and having this discussion with other experts and seeing at it from a couple of different perspectives. But for our listeners today, can you tell them where they can find out more, both about your companies and the information you put out? Well, the, what's become incredibly popular, I'm sort of cursing myself that I never thought of it earlier, is this podcast that's become hugely popular. So it's called the Nutrition Farming Podcast. It includes, you know, at least 40 or 50 minutes each time on, on, on all the kind of strategies that you can approve or use to build a healthier, a more productive, more profitable farm. And then it includes a similar story about how you can live a longer, happier, healthier life. And then there's some of my very dubious humor built in each time. I've got this kind of larrikin Aussie humor that some people might not relate to. Sometimes it's a little bit risque, but it's who I am and it's what I do. Uh, but it seems to be very entertaining. People just, people listen over and over and over. And so sometimes when I have these personal consults, so if you want to solve problems, it's just coming, it costs like 200 bucks or something. And I do an hour with you. Sometimes you want to do two hours. And we look at the soil test and we go through and sort whatever problems and make all sorts of suggestions, find out exactly what you're doing and how to tweak what you're doing so it's more sustainable, more productive. And that's just become like insanely popular. I can't, do, I can't sort of do much more of it, but, um, but, 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 but basically, and that's based on the podcast. So the podcast is called the Nutrition Farming Podcast. And, and like I said, you become part of people's lives because they listen because so much and you feel how much information there is when I talk it's like that for every podcast and it's different stuff every time uh, and so people just listen and listen so they can absorb it all and then you sort of become almost like part of their family so that's quite weird when you're doing because they know they've got such a prior understanding of everything that you can really move to a new level because you don't have to teach the basics they've got it all so the best tool is a nutrition farming podcast the website is www.nutritech.com and there I've got a blog called the Nutrition Matters blog you can sign up to that and you get a free copy of my book um, but that blog's got I don't know how many tens of thousands subscribed to that and so I write um, there's, well there's hundreds of published articles so if you if you rather read rather than listen that's the other option and there's lots of videos online and so forth um, many different videos of my presentations around the place online so there's plenty of places to learn from. Yeah, and I certainly recommend your TED Talk as well. It's a really good condensed version for people who are new to your information to get an overview of some of the things that you talk about. And then from there, go into the podcast and the blog. All right, I'll make sure to put all of those links in the show notes for this episode. And I will look forward to seeing you and connecting with you in the future. Thank you. And there you have it. Now, it's been a marathon of learning during this series with Graham, and I want to thank him again for taking the time to break down so many of the topics that he went into detail on and explaining them so well. Graham has an incredible way of making all of these connections and explaining them in a linear and digestible way. I really hope that you'll check out the websites from his various companies and his own podcast, Nutrition Farming, all of which I've linked to in the show notes for this episode so that you can continue to learn from him in further detail. Now, if you're interested in hearing the full uncut original interview that we did together, you can check out the entry level of our Patreon memberships. Now, none of my Patreon subscription tiers are based on donations. Instead, at every tier, you'll find valuable educational resources that accompany this show and some links to live sessions with the experts. And before you go, remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the ongoing conversations happening around these topics on the Regenerative Discord server. 
The Discord server will always be free to you, and unlike other social media platforms that were created with complex algorithms used to mine your personal data in order to sell you more junk, this channel was created for the free exchange of ideas, stories, and mutual support among the growing regenerative pioneers. Now, over the next couple of weeks, I'll be exploring questions like, what could happen to our global society if everyone had affordable access to healthy and nutrient-dense food during their entire lifespan? What could that do to transform our healthcare systems, our education systems, and beyond? So just check out the link on our Instagram account or on the homepage of the website at regenerativeskills.com to join the conversation today. Now that's our show for this week. Don't forget to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.